God, we bring before you so many of our own burdens, so many of our own needs. Got so many things going on in our own personal lives, and we enter this moment, Lord, asking that you would put all of our distractions to the side. God, give us a type of focus and a, an openness before your word this morning to allow you to work in the deep places of our heart. God, I pray that you would conduct that mysterious and life-changing conversation between your spirit and our hearts by your word. And so, God, would you move in power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the spirit of having our child dedication service just a few months ago, I just want to add another free uh, piece of advice for parents who have young children here this morning. Now, this may not be um, any news or anything new for uh, parents this morning, but you need to know, parents with young children, that flying with them, getting into an airplane, is a challenge. Okay, a challenge is probably an understatement, um, but it's a, it's a really difficult experience. And if you're a parent here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, no, I've, I've done that, that's easy, you know, my kids just slept the whole time, they were angels on the airplane, you know, if that's you this morning, like, Praise the Lord for the grace that he's given you with that. But for the Beals family and for normal families, like getting on the airplane with our kids almost feels like, um, you remember Dante's Inferno's, like the nine circles of hell? Like I feel like there was a 10th one that was added just for parents with young children. So I don't know about you, but my experience, we've got two little girls. My experience goes something like this. We're on the airplane, and before the airplane even takes off, like I am sweating profusely. Like, I'm wrestling, like, almost like, like uh, Lila's an alligator, like, in my arms so she doesn't go up and down the idols. And I feel like the whole plane is just staring at us like some type of a freak show. And what tends to happen is lately I've been missing the flight attendant's kind of pre-flight instructions on safety and kind of the details of our flights. And to be honest with you, like, I kind of feel sorry for flight attendants because I feel like half the plane's not even listening but when I'm wrestling one of, my, one of my girls, like, the flight attendant just seems like that teacher on Charlie Brown who's like, wah, 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 you know, like, I'm not even paying attention. Like, in that moment when, you know, she's explaining what to do in the case of an emergency, we've got, you know, very little oxygen or no oxygen at all. Like, for me, like, I'm, I tend to tune that person out because in that moment, like, I don't feel like I'm in danger at all. Like, I don't, I don't have a fear of flying. Like, I feel pretty safe and secure where I am. And so for me, like in that moment, I'm just glad to know that those oxygen masks are there in case we need them, in case of a crisis. But, but I don't really feel the need to focus on them all that much. I would hate for them to drop down and have to use them in a time of crisis. But for me, I'm just glad that they're there in case I need them. I share that with you this morning because I think that that's a fairly accurate description of how some of us view prayer and crying out to God in desperation. That we're just glad that it's there in case that we need it uh, in, t- in, in, in time of crisis or, or need, but we don't really go to it all that often. I want to suggest to you this morning that prayer and crying out to God in desperation is is not the oxygen mask of the Christian life, but it is the very oxygen that we breathe as followers of Jesus. I want to suggest to you this morning that prayer ought not to be our last resort in a time of crisis, but prayer ought to be our first response because it is 
the air that we, breathe, that we breathe as followers of Jesus. And look, we, we all need oxygen, whether you're in a time of crisis or not. Like, I just wonder, what would happen to us as individuals and even as a church if we viewed crying out to God in desperation as much as a necessity as getting breath into our lungs? I wonder, what, what would that do to our church if we viewed prayer in that way? What would that do to our marriages, to our families, to our friendships, to our small groups, if that was the normal experience within the Christian life? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that in order for us to view desperation for God as the oxygen of the Christian life, not just the oxygen mass, then we need to be a people who are filled with humility. That I'm going to walk us through this idea of humility, but I want you to know on the front end, I believe that humility is the key to cultivating a desperation for God because humility connects us to our need for God. We're going to unpack that as we go throughout 1 Peter chapter 5. But last week, we looked at really the first step in how to cultivate a desperation for God. The first step is to identify what barriers are in your heart from you crying out to God in desperation. We looked at this idea of of being self-sufficient. Well, today, I want us to see that humility is really the soil by which desperation for God grows. We'll see that in 1 Peter chapter 5. We've been in this book, um, we were in this book about a year and a half ago, and we learned that Peter is writing to a community of believers who have been scattered because of persecution. That these believers knew all too well what suffering for the gospel was all about. They had a, a desperation for God because of a crisis. Now, as Peter is finishing this letter, he's drawing their attention to this idea of humility because he wants to make sure that these believers don't drift back into self-sufficiency and relying on themselves. That Peter wants these believers to have a type of humility and a type of awareness of who God is that drives them deeper into being desperate and reliant upon the Lord, not just in a time of trial. And so four ways that humility cultivates a desperation for God. I want to walk through each of these during the rest of our time together. Here's number one, is that humility draws the gaze of God. Humility draws the gaze of God. Before we dive into the specifics of this this passage, know that in verses 6 through 11, there are three verbs that serve as commands in this passage. Verse 6, you have humble yourself. Verse 8, we are told to be sober-minded and watchful. And then in verse 9, we are told to resist the devil. But everything in this passage really flows out of that first command in verse 6 to humble yourself. Verse 6 is really kind of the central command uh, that should characterize all followers of Jesus, that we should be humble. This is the foundation of our passage. Now, before I unpack this idea of humility and even define it, let me point out one thing that's really important about this passage. I want you to notice that Peter grounds this command in verse 6 in the previous verse in verse 5. Do you see the word therefore in verse 6? Peter says, humble yourselves therefore. And what he's doing with the word therefore is he's drawing us back to verse 5. He's saying, humble yourselves therefore, or humble yourselves because of what I just said. And so what did Peter just say? Well, at the end of verse 5, 
Peter quotes from Proverbs 3.34, which says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, now what Peter's doing here, he's showing us the motivation for why we should humble ourselves. That what this text is saying here is, uh, if you are someone who is prideful, if you are someone who is self-sufficient, if you don't see your desperate need for God, what this text is saying is that not only will you not receive grace from God, but God actually stands against you. It's not that you're missing out on blessings from God, but that God's face has been turned against you. And yet he lavishes grace upon the humble. That God is, you could put it this way, attracted to weakness and to neediness. Like this is something really important about humility and how it cultivates a desperation for God because something about humility that draws the gaze of God upon our lives. It's almost like the person who is humble recognizes that there is a need in their life that can only be met by God and it's as if as if God's hands are filled with grace and blessing and favor and power and presence and to the humble heart God opens his hands up and releases those things to those that are humble that he lavishes grace upon those who are filled with humility. Look, some of us are here this morning, and you may not have a desperation for God, a hunger for God. And there might be a lot of reasons why that's the case, but I wonder if, if the reason is because your heart is filled with pride and self-sufficiency this morning. I wonder if, if because of the pride that might be in your heart, God actually stands against you and and you're not receiving the grace that he wants to give you it's almost like yes God stands against the prideful but it's almost like the prideful heart is just shut uh, closed tight so it can't receive what God has for us and so the role of humility here is that it draws the gaze of God and it it almost keeps our hearts open to receive the grace and the blessing and the favor that God wants to bestow Upon us. That kind of lays like the foundation and the motivation for pursuing humility. Number two, secondly, humility cultivates a desperation for God because humility stems from a right understanding of God and ourselves. That humility can't take root into our hearts unless we first see who God actually is and therefore we are informed about who we are. Like, this is why the sermon series that we walked through this summer was so important. We looked at the different attributes, the different characteristics of God, and now this sermon series goes well with that one, because in light of who God is, we can accurately see who we are. Let me point out three important truths in verse 6 that kind of grounds this idea. In verse 6, we have the idea of humbling yourselves. We've talked about this is a command. But the tense that this is in, it's something that is already completed. So in other words, Peter is saying that he's commanding us to basically live out who we really are. He's saying, be humble because you have been humbled, and you've been humbled by the gospel. Secondly, he says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So part of the humbling process is recognizing that God is mighty, that God is all-powerful, and we are not like God. This is the first step to embracing humility, is that God is God and we are not like him. And thirdly, he says 
that at the proper time, God will exalt you. That God determines when the trial is over, and yet this text may even suggest that the final exaltation may not occur in this lifetime. But regardless, it is God who is the one that exalts us, not ourselves. Okay, so he's grounding this idea in humility, trying to focus on the bigness and the mightiness of God. Now, furthermore, the, the word humility here is a really interesting word. It kind of takes on different meanings depending on the context that it's in. But when humility is a command, like it is in this passage, the word humble essentially means to make low or to bring down. Then it can be used for kind of the physical act of bowing. It can be used in a time of embarrassment or when there are circumstances that cause shame. I think of um, Paul in Philippians chapter 4 who uses this idea when he says in verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So humility has this idea of being brought low. But the word can more actively mean to make the heart small. So the sense here is not that one kind of falsely creates a condition or a mindset that is inaccurate, okay? You're not shrinking your view of yourself based on things that are inaccurate. Rather, the process of becoming humble is one of re-leveling, or it's bringing something into alignment, into reality, okay? It's taking who you really are in light of who God really is that protects us from false humility, Jesus makes this really clear in Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. He says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That Jesus is calling us to become like children, which is reality. Children are dependent and they're helpless without their parents. And so therefore, humility is directly connected to how we see God. A humility means that you have an accurate view of yourself, that you've been brought low, that your heart has become small, that you've been re-leveled. I love how John Calvin uh, talks about this in light of how we see God. He says that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. See, it's in how we see God that humility takes root in our lives. And this is why the gospel is so important. This is why the gospel is not just something that saves us, but the gospel is something that grows us and empowers us in the Christian life because it's the gospel that is the great re-leveler of humanity. So the Bible says that God is the creator of the universe, that it is God and God alone who should be worshipped, who should be adored, and who everybody should surrender their lives to. And yet the Bible also says that we all have fallen short of God's glory. We all have sinned. And in ourselves, there is no hope. There's no hope of forgiveness. There's no hope of saving ourselves. There's no hope of, of trying to reconcile things with our Creator But the beautiful story of the gospel, the reason why we love the gospel so much, is because the essence of the gospel is that God rescues helpless sinners. 
That's who God saves. God does not save people who want to clean themselves up, who do not acknowledge their need before God. God only saves those who are needy and helpless before him. And so this understanding of the gospel impacts our pride and our self-sufficiency in the same way that Paul talks about this in Romans 3. Notice the connection between the gospel and boasting or pride that Paul does in Romans 3 here. Let me read this. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our pride? What becomes of our self-sufficiency? Paul says it is excluded. See, the, the essence of the gospel message is that God graces sinners who deserve condemnation. That God takes sinful people who deserve judgment and he gives them the righteousness of Christ. He gives us the free gift of eternal life and the gift of faith in order to believe. That is a free gift. And so the effect that that has on our pride and our self-sufficiency, Paul says, is that it's excluded. There's no basis, there's no foundation for any type of pride in our hearts because everything we have has been given to us from the hand of God, including your salvation. Look, in other words, the entire Christian life is to be marked by a God-centered, grace-receiving humility. All we bring before God is our neediness. And it's the bigness of God seen in the gospel that roots out our pride, roots out our self-sufficiency, roots out our self-reliance, and lays the beautiful soil of humility so that desperation grows. And so when humility takes roots, this desire for God grows. And when that takes place, that impacts how we see God and how we see ourselves. Tim Keller would say that when this takes place, there is an absence of self uh, when we see God for who he really is. Tim Keller, in his really helpful book on humility called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, provides a really helpful summary on true humility. He calls it gospel humility. And Tim Keller says this, he says, true gospel humility means that I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness, that the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings as a truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel-humble person. And listen to this. He says, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but it is thinking of myself less. Look, this is when humility starts to take root in our hearts is when we see God for all that he is in the gospel and God's view grows and our view of ourselves shrink so that we start thinking of ourselves less. Let me just point out the danger of pride here is that pride wants to enlarge ourselves and shrink God. That at the root, pride confuses our identity with God's. It makes us much larger than what we actually are. 
And so the way that we grow humility is to be consumed with the glory of God so that we don't have to worry about our own glory. It's to have our eyes fixated on God as the source of all truth, beauty, and goodness so that we are reminded that we are not. It's to be enamored with God's majesty and his worth so that we forget about our own. So look, you want to grow humility in your heart, grow your understanding and your view of the greatness of God. When we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are. And there's this releveling that takes place, and we're exposed before us as this cosmic gap between the transcendent God and our, our sinful state that creates this desperation and this need for God. So humility stems from a right understanding of God in ourselves. Number three here is that humility expresses dependency. Humility expresses dependency. This is another way that we can cultivate dependency upon God. The essence of humility is reliance upon God. And this is seen in verse 7, that as Peter tells us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Like this is a critical part in understanding how it is that we do humble ourselves. See, Peter is trying to teach us what's, what's a good first step in cultivating humility. He says, cast your anxieties upon God in prayer. Like you can tell if you are a humble person by what you do with your anxiety and with your worry. Did you know that anxiety is a form of pride? That anxiety is taking things that we cannot control and emotionally responding to those things as if our actions, our thoughts, and our concerns can actually dictate the outcome of whatever it is that we're trying to control. That anxiety flows from from self-trust. Anxiety wants to wants to try to convince us that God doesn't care, that God's not in control. Look, the more that we continue on in worry, the more that we are caving into pride. So Peter says, look, when you cast your anxieties upon the Lord, you are humbling yourself. That when you pray, you are creating humility. You're demonstrating dependence upon God. Look, this is why proud people do not pray. Proud people do not pray because they do not want to acknowledge their need before God. They do not want to admit their powerlessness. And so what proud people do is they work, they worry, they're anxious, and and they might be filled with anger because that helps them feel like they're in control again. And yet the real problem is pride. Paul Tripp uh, kind of puts more color on the problem of pride where he writes this. He says, the problem is that not only do we want to occupy the center stage, which is reserved for God alone, but we also want to be novelists. That we spend a lot of time trying to write our own stories and are often upset and anxious because the plot we have written is not unfolding. It's so good. He says, few of us actually live functionally with God's story in view, that we get stuck in our own autobiographies, but our stories do not belong to us. Look, many of us don't feel a desperation for God and a neediness for God because our hearts are so filled with worry and anxiety. That with every issue that comes into our lives that that does not follow our own narrative and our own autobiography, anxiety just comes rushing and gushing into our hearts like the rushing water of a broken dam. 
Anxiety is, is filling up our hearts, so there's no room for this desperate hunger for God to, to exist. Look, this morning, if you just looked at your own heart, if you just kind of did an inventory and looked at what's inside there, would having a desperation for God feel like there's room for that to exist? Or does it feel too crowded? Is there too much pride and, and, and lust and anxiety and worry and bitterness for this desperate hunger for God to actually exist in your heart? Like this text shows us how it is that we make room for a hunger for God. I, I love this verse here because uh, some commentators believe that Peter uh, is quoting here from Psalm 52, verse 22, but he's kind of putting his own spin on it. Psalm 55, verse 22 says, Cast your anxiety upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. It's almost like Peter is interpreting what that means. He says, Cast your anxiety upon the Lord, he will sustain you because he cares for you. The idea here is that casting your anxiety upon the Lord is a very practical way to cultivate desperation for God because as you cast and as you pray, you are inviting the Lord to come in and to enter into whatever it is that's causing you worry so that he can sustain you, so he can unleash his grace into your life because the gaze of God is focused on the humble in heart. Like you want to remove some of the clutter that's in your heart, the anxiety, the worry, cast your anxiety upon the Lord. Pray to the Lord to remove those things from your life. Like I said this last week, but I'll say it again. The things that you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. But the things that you don't pray about, those are the things that you trust in yourself to handle. Like you want to cultivate humility in your life, Consistently pray. Consistently cast your anxiety upon the Lord because proud people do not pray. And a great way to, uh, to fight against the pride and the self-sufficiency is to pray and to pray consistently. Fourth, the last thing here I want to point out, fourth way that humility cultivates desperation for God is that it creates spiritual urgency Create spiritual urgency or a spiritual awareness. Peter, in verses 8 and 9, calls us to be sober-minded and watchful. Maybe other translations out there, it has be self-controlled and alert. The reason for this is because we have an enemy who is like this roaring lion who is seeking someone to devour. Like, that's really in the Bible. Like, you really have an enemy who's trying to destroy your relationship with God. Like, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes, due to pride, we have too much of a relaxed posture in the spiritual battle that's taking place all around us. Look, it's, it's pride and it's self-sufficiency that causes this desperation for God to leak out of our hearts. It's pride that, that blinds us from the spiritual battle that's taking place, from this enemy that's trying to rob us of having a desperation for God. It's pride that tries to convince us that it's peacetime. Just relax. Take it easy. You can, you can skip your time in the Word today or tomorrow or for the next week. Pride tells us you do not need to be desperate for God. Like Peter is calling us to be humble in order for us to see the spiritual battle all around us so that we can be filled with this urgency, 
this awareness that our enemy wants to hijack our desires and in exchange fill us with worry, fill us with self-sufficiency, fill us with self-righteousness and self-reliance. And look, the, his strategy, his strategy is, is very rarely using big things to cause us to fall spiritually. His common strategy He uses small things in our lives, small sins, if you will, so that over time, incrementally, we move farther and farther away from God, farther and farther away from seeing our need for God. Look, the danger is that pride blinds us throughout this whole process. I want to commend to you this morning C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. He talks about this. This is a fascinating book. C.S. Lewis is writing from the perspective of a seasoned uh, mentor demon, writing to uh, kind of a a protege, kind of someone that's learning how to tempt Christians. He writes this about the small sins. He says, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. And look, the danger of not being humble is that pride just blinds us to this whole process puts us on the center stage where we are so good at rationalizing and being our own defense attorney. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. Gradually taking one step at a time further and further from God, further and further from seeing your need for God, till you wake up one morning and you start praying prayers like the Pharisee in Luke 18, what we saw last week. And then shortly thereafter, you stop praying at all. So Peter's urge here, my exhortation for us this morning is to resist pride, to resist the devil, to resist the notion that you do not need to be desperate for God, to resist the idea that you don't need to have a spiritual sense of urgency to pursue the things of God. Look, we need to embrace humility, to cultivate humility in our lives because humility reminds us of the dangers of what happens when we don't resist the devil. That humility shows us that only God can help us to stand firm and to resist our enemy. Humility is what cultivates desperation in our lives. So as I close this morning, where do we go from here? I mean, I, you know, praying and preparing this message just... Um, thinking about, like, how do, I, how do I land this plane, talking about humility, talking about pride, where there's not one person that can dodge the conviction of this passage this morning. Uh, this morning, it, I hope you take this the right way. If you're here today and you don't feel the conviction from this passage, that's probably a good indicator that you have pride in your heart. And so how do we respond to this? Well, this morning, we want to just create just some time and space for us to respond to the Lord just between you and him. And maybe this is a time in which you need to cry out to the Lord for grace, for forgiveness. Maybe you've recognized your own pride in your life that you want to you bring before the Lord. Maybe during this moment, 
You just need to cry out to the Lord and renew your commitment to him, to seeing him for who he actually is. Maybe you need to read some verses or go through different passages to cultivate the bigness of God. However the Lord leads you in the next couple of moments, do it before we close with this last song. But before I close, I want to I read a prayer that's been adapted from the Valley of Vision, which is basically a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And this prayer is praying against self-sufficiency. I just want to close with this this morning, that this might be the prayer for our church and for our own very lives. It says this. It says, O Lord, may I never fail to come to the knowledge of the truth, never rest in a system of doctrine, however scriptural, that does not bring or further salvation or teach me to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts or help me to live soberly, righteously, godly. O Lord, may I never rely on my own convictions and resolutions, but be strong in you and in your might. May I never cease to find your grace sufficient in all my duties, trials, and conflicts. May I never forget to go to you in all my spiritual distresses and outward troubles, in all the dissatisfactions experienced in creature comforts. May I never fail to retreat to him who is full of grace and truth, the friend that loves at all times, who is touched with feelings of my infirmities and can do exceeding abundantly for me. May I never confine my religion to extraordinary occasions, but acknowledge you in all my ways. May I never limit my devotions to particular seasons, but be in your fear all the day long. May I never be godly only on the Sabbath or in your house, but on every day abroad and at home. May I never make piety a dress, but a habit. Not only a habit, but a nature. And not only a nature, but a life. Oh God, let that be true of us and our church. Lord, I pray that you would continue to expose our own temptations and sin of relying on ourselves. God, we want you to be the center of this church. We want you to create a dependency and a longing for you. So God, I pray that you would show us the path of humility that's best seen in the gospel. God, help us to, to preach that to ourselves, to root out the pride that's there. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.